What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And today we have an emergency podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, There has been a very exciting news release, a very exciting drug coming to market. Uh, We'll talk more later about some studies that'll make your head spin. Um, But first, a word from our, well, not our, but a hormone analyst, natural nurse mama. Birth control advocates are celebrating that history has been made with the new over-the-counter birth control O-pill. Yes, history has been made. More women than ever will be at an increased risk of hormonal cancer, heart attack, stroke, depression, anxiety, PCOS, acne, osteoporosis. More women than ever will be duped into thinking it wouldn't be on store shelves if it wasn't safe to take. More young women and teens than ever will gain reproductive freedom, but lose their physical health. Sounds pretty scary. She should have put a couple PMID numbers in there to make it seem a bit more legit. Oh, some citations? Yeah, some citations. Uh, That triggers people when you ask for citations. Yeah, if only there was somebody that could dive a bit deeper into this. That that is really pretty scary. And um, I bet some of those things do have merit to them. And FDA deep dive revealed that benefits of over-the-counter birth control pill outweigh risks. And where's the nuance to that? No citations were harmed in the creation of this statement. Also no citations for that. Oh, did they even mention one benefit or one risk? Did they mention the benefit of uh, being able to have a baby or not have a baby at the time of your life that you desire? Yeah, they mentioned both benefits and risks and specifically that the benefits outweigh the risks. Yeah, so it almost seems like this is an issue where, where there's two different sides and there needs to be a balanced approach. Um, and that's what we will be talking about Sounds, today. We are on a roll. Yeah, we like doing that. <laughs> All right. So I guess we can unpack um, analyst number one's position. Yep. So um, first of all, who is the target consumer for this medication? So if we're looking at the average American, the average woman who desires contraception, Who is that and what health conditions do they have or not have? Mm -hmm. The target for this over-the-counter contraceptive pill is a, obviously a female, biologic female, and in general, very young, uh, probably underserved or un, um, you know, uh, underinsured, uninsured perhaps, that they do not want to go to a physician to get an oral contraceptive prescribed. Um, It is a, 
a topic that we've discussed before. I think we called it our synthetic hormone or synthetic HRT podcast because oral contraceptives are synthetic hormone replacement therapy. It's HRT that is more complicated than bioidentical HRT. So if your practitioner is not comfortable with bioidentical HRT, then you shouldn't be comfortable, comfortable with them advising you on which synthetic estrogen and or progestogen or just progestogen to take. So that being said, um, that's the target audience for the over-the-counter progestin-only pill, over-the-counter mini pill. The target audience for this natural nurse mama is probably people like my wife, uh, crunchy moms, people that take their kids to, you know, um, outdoor places, their homeschool. There's people that I was homeschooled as well. Um, I usually call myself the, the most natural evidence-based doctor that you will find. Um, so people who are naturally minded that want to, um, you know, take good care of their bodies and uh, avoid synthetic or unnatural things if possible. The problem with that is there has to be a balanced approach. Yeah. And as people may know, I was half homeschooled and we you know, are halfway in between these sort of two worlds of medicine and what is natural. And we think that people's values and morals are very important when it comes to shared decision-making. So uh, let's say this is a 20 year old female with no comorbid health conditions. Uh, is she at a high risk of cancer or a heart attack? Let's say no, but from taking this pill, if she was at a higher risk of certain types of cancer, that is something that is normally done in the shared decision-making process. For example, if this 20 year old, um, was a smoker, a cigarette smoker, then uh, often you want to talk about risk of venous thromboembolism, blood clots, um, perhaps if this individual is much older, heart attack risk. Um, and then uh, depending on cancer, you can't just, uh, when it comes to both HRT and synthetic HRT or oral contraceptives, you have to delineate cervical cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, et cetera. Yeah, so cancer, uh, this woman takes this pill long-term, breast cancer, yes, going to be at a small increased risk. Cervical cancer, yes, likely from more unprotected sex. It is at least part of that equation. Ovarian cancer, no, you actually have a decreased mm -hmm. risk of ovarian cancer yep. whenever you use a oral contraceptive. Yep. Um, so I, I think that's really interesting. And even the um, levonorgestrel IUDs, which uh, women are many times told do not have systemic effects, um, are associated do. with an increased risk of breast cancer and uh, increased risk of even um, psychiatric conditions, anxiety, depression. Um, so from a mental health standpoint, uh, yes, levonorgestrel, and we're saying levonorgestrel even though it is norgestrel is, is what O-pill is because levonorgestrel is the active component, the active isomer in this drug. Yep. So from a mental health standpoint, there is an increased risk and some women will have increase in anxiety or new onset anxiety, depression. Um, yeah, there will be some suicide attempts with that, but then you have to look at the counterpoint to that. Um, having an unexpected pregnancy can also induce mental health conditions, psychiatric conditions because of the burden of stress. Yeah. And we'll put uh, either a link or a picture of a graph with uh, odds ratios, 95% confidence intervals, or a link to that 
so that you can go look at the data for yourself if you like. And again, a large meta-analysis, large systematic review, that's kind of the gold standard. When it comes to mini pills, a bit of context um, before we go into like heart attacks, PCOS, acne, other risks of this. Even if they're small risks, they're risks worth discussing. So hopefully we're doing a service to the public by doing this. But um, the first progestin only or mini pill contraceptive came out uh, in around 1970. So it's been out, that's over 50 years now. So they're not new. And a lot of the studies were on norethendrone, which is um, also known as norethisterone. And uh, people who saw our previous podcast, we uh, dove deep into receptor affinities, uh, into various receptors that this is going to affect. Um, spoiler alert, it does not just bind the progesterone receptor, it binds the androgen receptor. Some are androgenic, some are anti-androgenic. Um, norgestrel happens to be androgenic, which is both good and bad, right? So bad for things like acne um, and good for certain things as well. But um, it, it's not just a matter of being uh, like, you know, an agonist or an antagonist. It's a matter of how strong that agonism or antagonism is. Agonism is just binding the receptor and activating it. And then antagonism is inactivating the receptor. Receptor affinity is how strong it does that. So the door that I or the analogy I usually use for, for any receptor, <laughs> including the androgen receptor, is it's a door and it's how easily it's going to be able to break down that door. Yeah, I think that's helpful for people. And, and we talked about who's a good candidate for each of these. So we'll put a link to that podcast in the description. Mm -hmm. So, you know, heart attack risk. I don't think that this is really valid. I mean, yes, there's probably going to be a person or a small number of individuals that they have an underlying, you know, coagulation disorder, and they have a vascular event of sorts. Um, but they're at a high risk for that. In any case, I think VTE, yep. venous thromboism embolism, is a much more realistic concern because there's a higher absolute risk of that. Yeah, like a 45 year old smoker with factor five, and um, you know, FH. I'm sure they'll just terrible. read the relative contraindications on the, the package insert. Yeah. <laughs> get a magnifying glass and take a look. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think, yeah, there will be a slight increase in a risk of coagulation and um, vascular events. Mm -hmm. But of contraceptives, this is actually a pretty good choice if you're looking for something that is going to have the smallest risk of causing blood clots. So. Honestly, the average woman is probably, if they go and buy this over the counter, they're going to have a lower risk medication from a blood clot standpoint mm -hmm. than whatever pill they get from their primary or yep. OBGYN. I was listening to a podcast about um, abnormal uterine bleeding. Mm -hmm. And I presume you know, this woman working in the women's health field who was a physician was talking about, um, she was talking about you know, what pill you give for this. And she's like, really? Any pill will get the job done, but we try to use one with lower estrogen. So hmm. you're going, it's yeah, that will control your abnormal yeah. uterine bleeding, but uh, you're not looking at things outside of that, like yeah. blood clot risk. Yeah, it's just like hormone replacement. Um, and we say you can't be a hormone expert if you're not well-versed in every organ system in the body. So you can't just be uh, well-versed in uh, gynecology. You have to be a hematologist and hepatologist and neurologist to some degree. Uh, and at least be cognizant of the risks outside of that independent system. Um, a, a pretty good rule of thumb, and there is plenty of clinical literature on this as well, 
um, is regardless of the strength of the estrogen or the amount of the estrogen, and regardless of the amount or the strength of the progestogen, from individual to individual, as you see platelets and SHBG rise, and um, this often happens when estrogens bind the estradiol alpha receptor in the liver. We do know that ethanol estradiol is about 100 times stronger binding that than bioidentical estradiol. As you see those two rise, there is a very close association or correlation with risk of blood clot. So if your SHBG goes from 40 to 300, and then your platelets go from 150 to 500, regardless of what contraceptive you're on, that is a red flag. And you should be talking to your doctor about it. Or I guess if you just get this over the counter, you should be getting your own labs. Uh, labs are also over the counter. They are. Some people could probably do medical management of their own sort, although I don't recommend that. Um, you should definitely talk to someone about your labs to make sure those are being interpreted appropriately. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's kind of an interesting you know, thought experiment. So you know, it, it does give people something actionable to track, you know, get a baseline and then see what kind of changes happen. Because yep. uh, then you can kind of extrapolate from that what the risks are going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and you mentioned sex hormone binding globulin, uh, which kind of ties in with our next point here, um, PCOS. So this one is, this claim was totally inaccurate. Uh, contraceptives are not going to cause PCOS. Uh, in fact, contraceptives actually do a very good job of masking PCOS. Masking so, the symptoms. Yeah. No. So you have a 16-year-old who is having painful menstrual cycles. They get some acne. They're having abnormal cycles. They get put on a birth control pill. Ten years later, they come off of that because they want to conceive. And, oh, I was on that pill for 10 years. It must have given me PCOS because that acne and abnormal menstrual cycles come back because they were just being masked by the oral contraceptive. Yeah, we see this all the time. I've had so many patients come in, even 12 years old, 12 years old, 13 years old. Hey, I'm here for my birth control pill. I've noticed X and X symptom. And all of my older sisters had to have the same pill when they turned 12 or 13. And you get labs and often they have just a bit and often it is significant where you know if you had just given this person an oral contraceptive, as they come off of it, they are extremely likely to have infertility. So address the root cause. That's the that's true functional medicine for that. I guess you could see our dysfunctional medicine podcast. <laughs> yeah, but the one unique thing about Opil is that it is actually mildly androgenic. Um, it won't mask PCOS symptoms, um, maybe in terms of the menstrual cycle, um, but in terms of acne, um, hair loss, you, you know, hair hirsutism, abnormal hair growth, you're not going to see those things covered up. Mm -hmm. You may see them exacerbated potentially. Yeah. Um, that's a bit of a toss up. Um, there was one paper that was going to do a, a great job looking at this. Um, they had initially looked at, they were going to compare the newer generation um, contraceptives and they were going to look at um, levonorgestrel versus second and third generation or levonorgestrel being a second generation compared to third generation rather. Um, and they're going to look at metabolic differences and quality of life. And then the actual study came out uh, and I went, read that study and they seem to have axed the metabolic health outcomes and just reported on quality of life. So what they proved with this is that the newer third generation uh, contraceptives 
the progestinic components uh, were not inferior to the existing treatment. Um, but I would have really liked to see the head to head metabolic data, but mm -hmm. for whatever reason that uh, was in the plan, but didn't make it to publication. Yeah. I'd love to see body composition data as well. That'd be interesting. Of course, with uh, less estrogenic signaling acutely, you would have uh, less fluid retention potentially. Um, but it would be interesting to see body composition data. The, uh, there's obviously other mini pills there. I believe there's four mini pills and there's been several others. And just like some of them have different rates of efficacy for uh, preventing conception, which we'll talk about in the benefit section, they also have uh, different downsides. So they could have chosen a less androgenic mini pill if they're uh, like, you know, targeting a PCOS audience. But I think it's good that they didn't because it's good that it does not mask symptoms so that those individuals will seek out medical care. Yeah, it, it's one of the, perhaps I don't think it was a, <laughs> intentional, but perhaps a serendipitous yeah. silver lining. Here. Oops, we picked the right one. <laughs> um, acne, if we talked about um, not going to mask acne, so people are going to be still seeking care for acne more than likely. How about this one? Osteoporosis. So we talked about this before, mm -hmm. uh, combination of progestin, especially one with an anti-androgen component yep. and ethanol estradiol doesn't cause osteoporosis. Um, I think this is a bit of a exaggeration, but it could be a long-term concern because you may limit your peak bone density. So the, the data is fairly clear that even with an estradiol level as low as 30, yeah, between 30 and 50 peak grams per milliliter, uh, women on progestin-only contraceptives do not lose bone mass. Mm -hmm. They yep. just may not be accruing bone that they otherwise would if their estradiol level was, let's say, 100, 150, yep. maybe as high as two or 300 during ovulation. If you're an adolescent or a teenager, you should be talking to a physician about bone mass, especially if osteoporosis or osteopenia is an uh, issue in the family history. And it's also not too early to get a DEXA scan. And look at bone mineral density. That that's what I would do if I was in that situation. Um, this is probably extrapolated from the Depo-Provera injections, um, medroxyprogesterone acetate. And with this it, osteoporosis, especially if you're on it for many years, in fact, you really shouldn't be on it for more than, I think 10 years is the strict cutoff, but it's not like you take Depo-Provera for nine years and you're totally fine. And then the 10th year, <laughs> you develop a uh, risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis. Yeah. Uh, and what about infertility? Uh, isn't that the point? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. I, I think we could safely say that uh, fertility rates across the country for women are about to plummet. Yeah, that is true. Uh, pregnancy rates um, are also plummeting. I thought we had a issue with not enough uh, population. Didn't Elon Musk say that we're in a population crisis because there's going to be so few young people and so many older people and taxes are going to increase and people aren't going to get social security. So we're going to see so shouldn't a, we be, shouldn't a, we a chart it over the counter pill and the economy. And it's going to go like this. Yeah. The economy is going to go down. pill is going to go up. Yeah. Um, it's a, that's an interesting, I guess, uh, that's more like sociology or population yeah. health or something. So uh, regardless of that, um, uh, we could probably move on. Yeah. Uh, we don't really do a lot of social commentary here. So infertility, um, acutely, yes, that's the 
desired result. You're wanting to not conceive. Now, there have been cases, even several in our practice, where women have been mm -hmm. on progestin-only contraception and had zero lab work monitoring of any hormones, and then they come off of that, and the periods don't come back. And six months go by. Oh, sometimes it takes a while. They'll hear from their primaries. Two years go by. They say, oh, it, it takes a while. And then uh, check some blood work, and they have undetectable level of estradiol in their body, who knows how long that has been going on. Yeah. You really can't monitor what you don't measure. So um, this woman, this could be a case where someone is losing bone loss or mm -hmm. is losing bone, having bone loss. If they're on a progestin-only contraceptive, they become amenorrheic, they're taking it continuously. Yep. It's expected in most women to be amenorrheic. It's normal. Um, but you should still be getting some lab work to see, mm -hmm. do you have some level of estradiol production, you know, making sure that you're not you know, putting yourself at risk because we can give these sort of broad guidelines and what we would expect in the average person, mm -hmm. but it really does come down to the individual. Yep. Some people are gonna have you know, undetectable level of estradiol. Some people are gonna have plenty of estradiol. They're not gonna lose bone taking medication like this. Yeah, um, the rule of thumb that the general medical community uses if if it's been longer than six months and you haven't returned to regular menstrual periods, which is usually defined, you get oligomenorrhea if you go for more than 35 days in any one cycle or nine or fewer per year. But I would encourage anyone that even if you don't meet that cutoff or even if it's only been three months and you haven't returned, um, the earlier you seek out medical care, the better because it just gives you so much more time to have a simple visit and maybe tweak something in the lifestyle, tweak a supplement where you don't wait to the very last minute and you're approaching um, advanced maternal age and you're desiring fertility acutely. Then you have a lot less options and uh, most doctors at that point aren't even willing to work with you with root cause medicine. They just want to skip all the way to the end and press the IVF cheat button, uh, which uh, for multiple reasons, is uh, even what they do in younger ages, but the earlier you seek out care, the better. Agreed. So I guess we can go back and talk about some of the nuance around this, some of the pros perhaps. Mm -hmm. So um, I thought this was a great one. Will this prevent unwanted pregnancies? Yeah. And is, is that, that a good that thing? A good thing? <laughs> I, I certainly think so. Like we alluded to earlier, one of the uh, biggest health benefits that on your balance scale of benefit and detriment outweighs everything else is being able to not conceive or conceive, basically having uh, reproducing at the time of your life when it is best for you. That's also best for uh, the baby and society. Um, and that's good. Um, uh, we mentioned that different progestin only pills had different efficacies. It's likely around 98% um, efficacious. So about 2% of time with typical use, you have uh, pregnancy, even if you take the pill with typical use. Some studies show as low as 0.3% um, pregnancy rate with perfect use. So 99.7%. And yes, I do know um, of plenty of cases where there's quite good use and there is still pregnancy. So if there's uh, someone that really, really, really doesn't want to get pregnant, would there be something that would have perfect 100% efficacy for preventing unwanted pregnancy? 
No. Abstinence, maybe? <laughs> maybe not well, even that. It's, it's, in, it's just like if you tell someone, move more, eat less, you'll lose weight. Mm -hmm. Be abstinent, you won't get pregnant. The prescription for abstinence is definitely not 100% effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, a life where, uh, and you know, even if you're married, then you're probably not going to want to only have intercourse the one time that you want a baby. I mean, <laughs> how boring would that be if you had a baby the first time that you had intercourse and you're like, well, I guess we can't have intercourse again until you want another baby to wait two years. Yeah, well, so, I guess you've got your what, nine month window there. <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah you that's have true. A, a long waiting period. That's after true. That. Yeah. Long waiting period. So um, anyway, uh, drospirinone, which is another um, prescription, which is an anti-androgen, it's spironolactone-based um, rather than nandrolone-based, uh, has a slightly better efficacy. I don't know if it's clinically significant, but a 1.8% instead of a 2% uh, pregnancy rate. So, yeah, and if we're looking at the majority of the population again, so women who are overweight or obese are more likely to have these sort of, yep. I don't know what to call them, a breakthrough pregnancy. Especially um, more than 200 pounds. Yeah, because at that point you do need a more potent uh often higher dose oral contraceptive to get the same contraceptive benefits. Mm -hmm. So um, it still sounds relatively good. Even with typical use, you're looking at somewhere between 90 to you know, 99 plus percent as mm -hmm. far as the effectiveness, but it's not hundred percent. So people should not expect to not get pregnant. It's just very unlikely that they would. Yeah. Dosing is another thing that we looked into pretty significantly. Um, it was interesting to see that compared to the plan B pill, which is kind of the same medication at a different dose, I believe it was 17 times less. Uh, depending Something on the like dose that. you're looking depending at, the dose. if you're looking at the 1.5 milligram levonorgestrel pill, um, then you could take, what would that be? Basically four of those twice, 12 hours yep. apart. So you take four O pills in the morning, four O pills that evening, and you've essentially recreated the plan B, one of the plan B pills. Yeah. And technically you can also do this even with um, combined oral contraceptives, but you just get terrible nausea and vomiting and feel horrible from all the estrogen. So it's much better to use a progestin only and obviously talk to your doctor, that's not medical advice. Um, another thing that we were looking at is which percentage of enantiomer, and what we mean by that is this is norgestrel. So norgestrel is made up into a right-handed molecule um, that's usually called the dextro side and then the levo side, left-handed molecule, kind of the same. And the um, levo one is the um, active one that's yeah. working. Just uh, like how dextroamphetamine is yep. just a placebo. It doesn't really do anything, yeah. right? <laughs> Not all dextro De isomers are created De equal. Dextroamphetamine is very dopaminergic. So Adderall is a mixture of brand name Adderall is actually 75%, I believe, 75% dextroamphetamine. 25% levoamphetamine. Levoamphetamine is a bit more uh, adrenergic, specifically with uh, adrenaline or epinephrine and also noradrenaline. And dextroamphetamine is more dopaminergic uh, dopamine. So there's a mixture of two, 75%, 25%. So it's more dopaminergic. Generic versions of mixed amphetamine salts are um, not necessarily 75%, 25%, anywhere from I think 55, 45, all the way up to that. So you don't really know what you're getting. It's a mystery mixture. 
And then uh, <laughs> of course things like, blend. yeah, like dexedrine, um, lisdexamphetamine, those are pure dextro and antimer. Um, so we looked up and the only source we found was on Wikipedia that said it was going to be 50%, 50%, but we don't really know what the mixture will end up being. Yeah, that's a, a, a source, but not necessarily a reliable source. Yep. But it's an interesting pattern that you see in drug development. And even with norgestrel, um, this same pattern happened. They got rid of that dextro isomer and you had levonorgestrel, which is where basically all of the data uh, that we pulled together for this came from. It's all based on levonorgestrel because it really wasn't terrifically popular. I think it was discontinued 2017 roundabout. Mm -hmm. uh, another company acquired it and now they're bringing it to market. Um, in reality, they could have just used a levonorgestrel product, but there's probably patents and, and things like that that prevented them from doing so. Yeah, slightly tweak it and then make more money. Uh, the supplement and saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Pharmaceutical industries love doing that. Um, I guess while we're talking about benefits, we should talk about things other than preventing pregnancy. Um, as people that watched our uh, synthetic HRT podcast know, each of these uh, progestins and really uh, any hormone, you have to look at multiple receptors. So the receptors we have listed, the progesterone receptor is obviously an agonist at the progesterone receptor. And you can look up the receptor affinity as well, but you can compare it to uh, other uh, mini pills. And we don't have to go extremely in depth with this, but Micronor is a commonly prescribed one, especially uh, individuals who are postpartum. And there's actually pretty significant differences. Um, even if you look at desogestrel, which is actually what Implanon, Nexplanon, uh, Cerazet, Isobloom also has it in it, but Isobloom is not a mini pill. Um, but uh, basically the progestin that's in Nexplanons um, is very similar. And if you look up the androgen receptor, it both says positive. So that means it's the same level of androgenicity as the O-pill, right? You would think so based on this chart. Uh, and, and we'll probably recreate these in a more uh, easy to read way for people. Um, but if you actually go up and look at the affinity the levonorgestrel actually binds more potently to the androgen receptor. So it's a more potent androgen receptor agonist. So it seems like the group that is being catered to with this FDA approval uh, would be athletes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's an apt statement. If you look at another mini pill like drospirinone, it is an antagonist at the androgen receptor, um, a clinically significant antagonist. Interestingly, um, as far as like anti-estrogen and estrogen, it is uh, levonorgestrel or norgestrel is really the same thing. They're positive at both of them. So we're discussing, does that mean that it is a partial agonist, partial antagonist, um, like buprenorphine, or is it a CERM or yeah, both? It's, it's a question that I don't think we have an answer to as of yet. So maybe we'll find that out when we do our family tree of synthetic hormones, synthetic yeah. estrogens and progestogens. Yeah. Anabolic steroid family tree, 
estrogenic steroid family tree, progestogenic steroid family tree, all on the horizon. Um, if you happen to be, uh, again, like a PhD in pharmacology or a PharmD that is really into pharmacodynamics, um, please listen in or even shoot us a message. We'd love to hear your thoughts on things like this. The next one that we wanted to mention is agonism at the glucocorticoid receptor. So you think of prednisone, you think of um, cortisol, your endogenous glucocorticoids. And among progestins, there's actually a huge difference in whether it's positive or negative. You were mentioning, um, I don't remember if it was Magestral. Meg Ace. Yeah. yeah. Um, is certainly a glucocorticoid receptor agonist and is associated with weight gain. Whereas um, nor, uh, norgestrel is technically an antagonist, but I think completely insignificantly, whereas desogestrel is just a bit of an antagonist. Think of a similar effect to anabolic steroids like, I believe, nandrolone and oxandrolone are, um, I don't know if they're uh, direct glucocorticoid receptor antagonist or if they have a satellite interaction. So I don't know if they're a ligand or if they allosterically alter it, but it reminded me of that interaction, which is um, an interesting potential benefit Let's say someone has Addison's disease and they're on hydrocortisone all the time, or let's say they have Crohn's and they're on prednisone all the time. Um, there's certainly a, a secondary benefit to that. Yeah. And there may even be uh, changes on body weight. We know there's certain medications that are weight neutral, weight positive, or weight negative. If you have something that's antagonizing that glutocorticoid receptor, as you mentioned, that could be weight negative. It could actually be mm -hmm. associated with a reduction in appetite and some weight loss. Yep. Um, so I guess you could look at desogestrel as potentially a good one for someone with Cushing's disease. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Yep. But, uh, you know, those are rare. So <laughs> <laughs> who, who needs a specific, uh, who needs their, uh, you know, steroid stack designed? Who needs their menstrual cycle designed? <laughs> um, I think that's a, a pretty good summary of the receptor benefits. Again, we'll have a future episode on steroid family trees and dive more into those. Yeah, I did want to mention one more sort of a sub-study looking at the androgen receptor. Um, so we talked about the group of people that this is catering to. So this would be women who are um, athletes um, and then women who are engineers or engineering students, perhaps. Mm. So uh, an excerpt from this triggering study and at the start of the podcast, I said, this may make your head spin. And that's because they were doing mental rotations mm -hmm. testing. So this is someone's ability to manipulate an object in 3D space uh, mentally uh, and then predict what is going to happen when that object changes sides. Mm -hmm. So the main result of this study was that oral contraceptives in, and their androgenicity influenced the performance on this mental rotations task. So second generation oral contraceptives are the most androgenic. So yep. that would include love and gestural as one example, uh, the one that we've been talking the most about. Mm. Uh, and the mental rotations test performance was based best in these users compared to the newer third generation users. Um, and then Yasmin users, which is uh, ethylestradiol and drosperinone. So, Yasmin actually inhibited performance, even compared to non-users. So when you have that androgen receptor antagonism, you become less good at performing this mental rotations test, less good at visualizing how an object's gonna change. But whenever women were given the androgenic 
oral contraceptives mm. of love and progesterone, for example, their performance improved compared to non-users and also compared to users of the newer generation, third generation oral contraceptives. I feel like I need my tinfoil hat for this one. So you're saying that hormones have an effect on uh, neuro, like neurologic function, on how your brain works. Absolutely. Hormones are very I'd, important. I need my tinfoil hat. That just, <laughs> seems, that just seems like something that you would not want to say. It is, but uh, as but it's true. as we say, the data are the data. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other thought that I could have with this. So you said that Yasmin decreased the performance of, of manipulating objects in space and predicting what will happen with it. So that means if I have endometriosis, what you're telling me as medical advice is I should take Orlissa instead of Yasmin. <laughs> I, I guess it depends on how susceptible you are to this. Um, and how big of a part of your job manipulating objects in 3D space mentally is. And what potential downsides to Orlissa I might have. Yeah, here's a question. With Orlissa, if you maintain that same serum estradiol level of 30 to 50 that you would on a progestin, are you at an increased risk of bone loss? Uh, what's happening with IGF-1 and androgens? That would probably be the determining factor. Probably not optimal androgen status. I'm not sure what so would happen. Or plus TRT for endometriosis. Hmm. And a prolactin receptor antagonist. <laughs> it, but, it might happen in the future. It's being uh, similar things are being studied, but yeah, um, in any case, or interesting thought experiment. Yeah. Also for females who desire conception. Relatively soon, for example, within the next five to 10 years, Orlissa is probably not a great choice. It would seem to be a quite a poor choice. Yep. Just like, you know, triptorillin or Lupron is probably not a great choice for a male who desires conception within the next five to 10 years. Agreed. Uh, that was a fun little rabbit trail there. Um, let's see. We already talked about PCOS. We already talked about androgenicity. We talked about second generation and third generation uh, progestogenic contraceptives. Um, I don't think we've talked about uh, psychiatric effects specifically in this podcast. I know we mentioned the rate of admission, odds ratios for admission to um, psychiatric hospitals for different progestins in the past. Maybe we dive into that a bit. Yeah, we can uh, pull up the chart here as it does compare all of the uh, contraceptives and then the risk ratios for this is actually uh, uh, first use of antidepressants mm -hmm. or first diagnosis of depression. So you look at the very top here, uh, non-users risk ratio is one. So no increased risk, no decreased risk yep. across all forms of hormonal contraception. <laughs> there was no decreased risk of being prescribed an antidepressant or being diagnosed with depression. Mm. So in general, a contraceptive is associated with that. But there are some pretty significant differences when you look at these different forms. And I, the confidence intervals are actually pretty tight on these, which yep. is interesting. Yeah, pretty tight confidence intervals, lots of numbers, especially for certain contraceptives. Uh, a third group that would be nice to see, and I don't think that this has been studied, is the um, incidence of new prescription of an antidepressant from a psychiatric facility for individuals who cho chose not to use an oral contraceptive 
and who became pregnant when they did not want to be. Yeah, that'd be a heck of a subgroup to uh, to splice in here. Yeah, um, I I imagine you would see that uh, with a much higher relative risk ratio compared to the contraception. So you know the risk is all relative to someone's situation. Um, well, it's interesting to me here, even when these same progestins are used, there seems to be a bit of a um, a curve here when it comes to the estradiol, where a higher dose of ethanol estradiol, so 50 micrograms, that's a that's a hefty dose. I don't mm-hmm. think that's even commonly prescribed anymore. Not really. Uh, but that is associated with the highest risk, uh, which is interesting. Um, and again, confidence intervals are very tight there. You de-escalate that down to you know, 30, 40 micrograms. You still see a bit of a higher overall risk. You go down to 20 micrograms of ethyl estradiol, mm-hmm. and you see you know 10 to 20% increased risk. So it's not a zero effect, but the effect is much smaller. Mm-hmm. In the past, again, in the other uh, oral contraceptive podcast, we talked about the differences between implants and IUDs and contraceptives and even patches like Twirla. Um, which is just a levonorgestrel patch. Um, so see that episode for diving more into that aspect. Yeah, uh, and I guess the takeaway here, out of all the progestin only is that they looked at in this study, they found that levonorgestrel um, as a progestin only product was associated with the highest risk of first diagnosis of depression or mm-hmm. first prescription for an antidepressant with a 50% increased risk. So again, a little bit wider of a confidence interval here, yep. but you know, the, it looks like in some of these cohorts, it goes all the way up to a factor of uh, you know, being about twice as likely, a little over twice as likely to be prescribed or diagnosed. Yeah. So for mental health, it doesn't look like a great choice. So if someone has an underlying uh, mental health condition or if someone is going to be under significant stress, Mm-hmm. Uh, so perhaps someone going into a competitive college program, you know, mm-hmm. college athlete, um, an academic, someone who just has a lot of stress in their day-to-day life, levonorgestrel, probably not the best choice there because those odds are going to kind of stack together. Yeah. Um, another interesting interaction here, just talking about theoretically why the cause of this would be, is um, different neurosteroids. So... Probably not a huge effect on DHEA, but their uh, DHEA has been studied as an adjunct to oral contraceptive pills. Of note, DHEA is also over the counter. So I guess um, some people, if uh, if they want to take DHEA, if it's over the counter, I guess you can do whatever the heck you want. This is medical <laughs> advice. But um, <clears throat> there, uh, there's also a much different confidence interval for levonorgestrel and desogestrel. Um, 1.3 was the RR, and the confidence interval was, I think that's 0.54 through 3.86, so pretty wide, but there was only a bit over 1,000 people in that group, 40,000 in the desogestrel group, a 1.2 RR, and 1.06 to 1.42. So I guess if we were statisticians, we would say that... um, that's statistically significant. Yeah, so I, it, I suppose it's possible that something more androgenic could make some women feel better, uh, but the trend would be towards not that. And I think this has a little bit to do with the suppression of the estradiol. Yeah. So if you go back up and you compare, let's say, desogestrel, um, it's got a 
you know, it's just, this is just for a prescription of an antidepressant. 1.4 mm -hmm. is the relative risk ratio here. If you go up and look at same medication, desigestrel, but you add 20 micrograms of ethylestradiol, yep. um, with that you have a 1.1 relative yep. risk ratio. So only 10% versus 40%. Yep. And you know, estradiol sort of is a feel-good hormone. It will slow the breakdown of some of your neurotransmitters, things like your dopamine and serotonin. Um, the progestin onlys don't seem to have as potent of an effect disrupting tryptophan metabolism. But there is some degree of that that still does mm -hmm. occur with the synthetic hormones and the ethyl estradiol is probably kind of agonizing the estradiol receptor enough to get the sort of mood there at the right dose. Yep. Um, so something like maybe 10 micrograms would be the sweet mm -hmm. spot, but that would not really be relevant for you know an additional contraceptive benefit. Yeah. That would be more so a potential mood benefit. Mm -hmm. I don't know that's been studied. Yeah. Of note, yes, DHEA is a neurosteroid, but um, replicating the postmenopausal environment, especially in females that have very high DHEA, great adrenal production. Dr. Fernand Labry is the one that uh, kind of initially really dove into DHEA because it's intracellularly converted into estradiol. So even if your serum estradiol is not changing, uh, theoretically, if you take enough DHEA, and DHEA does have a lot of side effects like acne, by the way. So in general, with females, you're very cautious with DHEA. When it's prescribed, it's also a prescription. Um, you get that kind of, you're replicating the postmenopausal environment of DHEA um, converting to estradiol via intrachronology. Um, another thing we haven't talked about yet is DHP and THP. We love talking about those. Um, how would a progestin like that affect um, pulses of DHP and THP? Yeah, it, it's interesting. An oral progestin, from my understanding, would have a suppressive effect on progesterone production. And then your progesterone is not going to be able to interact with the GABA receptor by way of conversion into you know, allopregnanolone at the end of the line is where yep. the binding actually occurs. But you need progesterone to get that substrate. Um, in theory, if you take enough something like pregnenolone, also over the counter, mm -hmm. um, you might still be able to replicate that a bit. That's just not clear um, which progestogen would sort of win the the fight, as it were. There, mm -hmm. so it, it's sort of an interesting concept. And um, it, there's mixed data when it comes to the progestin IUD, which is levonorgestrel. Um, some studies seem to indicate that it actually may increase the basal production of progesterone, mm. um, which I found a bit surprising, but it's not terrific data. Uh, and that could also explain some of the variability in mood that you get if some women are making more progesterone with the IUD. Uh, some women are probably not going to have that effect because, again, you've got data sort of on both sides there. But yeah. adding more progesterone to someone that needs more gabinergic signaling should, in theory, improve mood and improve mental health. So I wouldn't be surprised mm. if someone's like, oh, you know, I got an IUD, it was a great experience for me. And, you know, as a result, my anxiety decreased on the opposite end of the spectrum. I wouldn't be surprised if someone says, mm -hmm. oh yeah, I got an IUD put in, um, like the 11 adjustable one mm -hmm. specifically, and I was a mess. It caused all kinds of problems. I was stressed out. So yep. people are gonna have very individual experiences. And this is what we see um, in these cases of our patients that are on, um, synthetic hormones, synthetic HRT, and it's what we see with our patients that are on bioidentical HRT. And it's what we see in perimenopause and menopause as well. There is a huge variation in response. And I think we have discussed, um, we've already discussed a lot of the 
theory behind it. But one other thing we haven't mentioned is the huge variation, um, both in males and females, in gonadal and adrenal steroid output. But especially in females, there is a massive difference, female to female, how much steroid output you have, estrogens, progestogens, and androgens. Androgens is just an easy example to use. But progestogens as well, progesterone and pregnenolone are made in the adrenal steroidogenesis cascade and in the ovarian steroidogenesis cascade. And depending on the individual, there is a very large difference. So yes, you can measure certain progestogens um, and androgens to see where it's coming from, but generally you don't have to do that um, if you are going to suppress ovarian production more than adrenal production. And you can see what happens before and after and in vivo tell what happens, just like you can tell how you respond to azetamib without testing your genetics to see if you're going to be a hyper responder. Yeah. And a lot of times you look at the clinical response, you know, look at the objective data, the blood work, uh, it's going to be a lot cheaper than you know, doing more expensive and a lot of times unnecessary testing. Yeah. Now, more testing isn't necessarily bad. Some people like to be extremely precise and know exactly what genes they have and why they're doing certain things and follow the data very, very closely. But like we said a million times, the value of the data lies in the interpretation. Mm -hmm. I guess on that note, uh, the value of the data is also getting the data in the first place. So I guess I'll um, mention that people can go to our website, GilletteHealth.com, and either order a lab panel there with the help of us, um, just click on order labs and you can look at advanced female panel would be a great one to start with. Or if um, you want to get an idea of your ovarian health, get uh, a fertility evaluation, including anti-malarian hormone um, or sign up for service if they want to. But just getting a, a general health panel first would be a great baseline. That way, if something comes up, you have that um, before you started any sort of contraceptive. You look at your DHEA, you look at um, various things. Maybe you don't take, um, maybe you do, maybe you don't take DHEA, maybe you do, maybe you don't take pregnant alone. Um, but chat with your doctor about this and hopefully all these, uh, I guess, nuances of the benefit and the detriment um, will help you make a decision what applies in your scenario. Absolutely. I think that people will be able to get a lot of value from this. And we kind of talked about who it would be who they would be a great candidate for it and who would be a you know, less optimal candidate for the O-pill. So let us, let us know your thoughts on the approval, whether you think it's a good thing, a bad thing, mm -hmm. the best thing that's ever happened, the worst thing that's ever happened, um, or somewhere in between. And thank you for your time and watching. May God bless you with health and happiness. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.